Well, thank you, Angie, and good afternoon, everyone. Someone said to us, there's really power in a testimony. And I'll, I can give you several. So we sent out uh, requests to people, uh, you know, that we knew their names and addresses and so on. And we asked people if they would send a testimony. You know, Psalm 34, verse 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Well, anyway, we wanted to know, do you really have an experience that you could tell us about where God did something great for your family because of your faithfulness and stewardship? So this is awesome. Kathy and I have a story in here, and if I have time, I'll tell you that this afternoon. Uh, I can tell you the, uh, you know, abridged version of it. The most amazing thing is we sold, pre-sold 92,000 of these, and when they went out to the churches, people started reading them and saying, where can we buy these to give to our friends? Well, they're never ever, we're in the ABC. Anyway, I have a few, and I want to give you one for your library here. But the, the follow-up to that is we started getting spontaneous stories that went something like this. If you think those stories are great, you should hear what God did for our family. <laughs> and so we got 150 more. This is volume two, really quite interesting. And then... Uh, pretty much the crowning act of my role as the stewardship director of North American Division, I have, uh, well, I've got too many things up here, written a book, or I'm the general editor of the book Faith and Finance. Some of you have seen the book. I talked about it at GYC and so on. But we also have this book now, the whole book and the uh, leader's guide in Spanish, also Faith and Finances, and so it's in English and Spanish. And we're working on getting it in French. Uh, but we also have a leader's guide for all of them, which has the PowerPoint programs and so on. And the idea is that you could do a small group study to learn about money management. Uh, last year, when it first came off the press, before it was actually off, I had some advanced copies, and I went to the Mountain View Conference, uh, which is uh, West Virginia, part of Maryland, and so on, to the workers' meeting. And my wife, Kathy, was just there this past week, and one of the pastors came to her and said, tell your husband that this changed our lives. He and his wife had read it through and followed the principles and so on. At any rate, I presented this in Atlanta to all the treasurers in the North American Division, and uh, that is the conference treasurers and the uh, union treasurers. At any rate, they were so impressed with it that the retirement office asked my permission to take chapter 9, which is on retirement, and just pull it out and put the same cover on it. But they did that and printed 10,000 copies and sent it out to all the Adventist retirees and also to all Adventist employers in the North American Division. So it's good material. I'll tell you, it's very Christ-centered, and it is also very up-to-date uh, financially, including uh, the current financial crisis. The reason I can do it that way, you know, if you give a typical book to the Adventist Review, it takes more than a year for it to come out. And the reason is they have all these committees that it goes through and everything, and which is a good idea. And there's a cover committee and a text committee and a layout committee and all these kind of things. Well, we actually did the book in-house and had a young a designer put it together, and we took it to the review, and it was out in two weeks. So that's really incredible. So it's current information, and I think you'll find it to be real, really helpful. And then the old standby that I always do is the It's Your Money, Isn't It?, this book. So I'm going to give a copy of it and the workbook also to your library so you guys can do some small group study or check it out and read it, whatever. I think you'll find it to be life-changing material, and I hope that will be helpful to you. Uh, am I going to be able to use this one? Oh, they're working on it. Okay. The reason is, I want to tell you, there are two Bible texts I want to show you before we get into the PowerPoint program. So let's do it. The first one uh, would be Proverbs, the third chapter. So we'll go there, and uh, I'll just give it to you real quickly. Proverbs, the third chapter, is actually one of my favorite Bible texts in the Bible, and especially dealing with stewardship. By the way, the book of Proverbs is an incredible book because you have two things there. The author is the wisest man who ever lived. Is that, can we concede that? And under the inspiration of Almighty God. So, I mean, what else could you ask for? This is a book of wisdom. So the book of Proverbs says, Proverbs third chapter, starting with verse five, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not to your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him. Would that include the management of our money? Sure. Then it says, if you do that, he'll direct your paths. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Now, verse 9 is what this is all leading up to. Verses 9 and 10. 
Honor the Lord with your possessions. What would we say? Your stuff. And with the first fruits of all your increase. Now, later this afternoon, I'm going to answer a question for you that some people have already. Later this afternoon, we'll talk briefly about tithing. So people will ask this question, should we tithe on the gross or the net? Have you ever heard that you know, before tax or after tax? Uh, I was a personal acquaintance of Larry Briquette, the late Larry Briquette, who passed away uh, about four or five years ago. And uh, he had a radio program that was on more than 1,000 radio stations in the United States. By the way, they didn't pay a cent for airtime. It was such a popular program, they were putting it on and getting local sponsors for it. But at any rate, a lady called in one time with this question, should I pay tithe on the gross or the net? I wouldn't answer it this way, but Larry said, would you like a gross blessing or a net blessing? <laughs> Really, the big bottom line is, here it says, honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first part of all. Over in the New Testament, in Matthew, the sixth chapter, middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, I know you guys need food, I know you need shelter, and I know you need clothes. You know what I'm going to say next, don't you? Matthew 6, 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all this stuff will be added unto you. So, both Old and New Testament say, put God first. And I believe that God will take care of you. Do you believe that's true? Amen. It is really, really true. So now it's time for me to tell you a story. And first of all, let's read the next verse where it says, So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Kathy and I, uh, do you mind if I tell you a couple of anecdotal stories in my life situation? Kathy and I were at Andrews University when I was in the seminary there. And... Uh, most of you have family traditions. One of ours is going to Tennessee for Thanksgiving. Wherever we've been in our work in the ministry, about 35 years out of our married life, we have gone to Tennessee for Thanksgiving. It's a big deal. Most of you know that Thanksgiving is the heaviest travel day in America. And so that's where we would go. One year, we were too poor to go. We were at Andrews. And... Uh, it was going to be too expensive for us to drive the 600 miles down to Tennessee. The reason was, it's going to make me sound old now, Exxon had just raised the price of gas to 36 cents a gallon, and we were really mad because everybody else was down in the 20s. Uh, but anyway, what happened was I said to Kathy, uh, you know, we sh we we'll just have a good Thanksgiving for ourselves. And Thanksgiving's fun even if you're in love, but we decided we would have some of our friends over who were in similar circumstances. So the week of Thanksgiving, I think it's about Sunday, I said to Kathy, uh, why don't you go out and get some special stuff, you know, cranberry sauce and all the other stuff that you'd normally get. Today, we're sophisticated enough that we make our own cranberry relish. But in those days, we got that congealed stuff that you cut in little slices, you know. It, it just, you always have it then if no other time. Anyway, she said, but I don't have any money. So I had been doing some tree trimming work, which I'm leading up to to tell you about Loma Linda. And I had just gotten a check for $400. And uh, so what I had done is cashed it and put $360 on our bill at Andrews. And I had the $40 of tithe in my top drawer at home. And so I said to Kathy, the only money I've got is that $40, but it's tithe. And then I started saying something that some of you have probably said in your life before. God knows how poor we are, and we can pay it back. And besides, the tithe is for the ministry, and we are studying for the ministry after all. You understand? Kathy and I started looking at each other and said, no way, we're not going to do that. So we didn't know what we were going to do. Uh, so later that day, it seemed, I was out working, and I said, you know, I hear that sometimes people buy blood. We were really poor, I'm telling you. You guys are students, so I'm this why I'm telling you this. So anyway, 12 miles southwest of Andrews University is a little town. What's the name of that place? Buchanan. They used to have a hospital there. They don't anymore. But anyway, Kathy called around, and she found that Buchanan was buying blood. So we went down there, and I got my finger pricked to do the typing thing. I hate blood. I don't know how you guys do this one. <laughs> anyway... Then I gave them a pint of blood, and they gave me this little voucher, and I went down to the business office, and they gave me $10. And uh, that was real money back then, of course. But when they typed Kathy, she was O negative. And of course, that's blood in high demand in many transfusion situations, as you may know. At any rate, when she got her little voucher and went down to the business office, they gave her $30 for her blood. <laughs> and of course, she's never let me forget the relative value of our blood, as you can imagine. <laughs> 
We didn't tell any of our friends that we had over for Thanksgiving that they were eating blood money, of course. <laughs> but here, I'm getting into something that's really amazing. Have you read the part in the book of Deuteronomy, I think it's about chapter 7, verse 9, where God says, if you honor me, I will honor you for a thousand generations. So, we left Andrews University with all of our bills paid, no student loans, and driving a new car. Now, by the way, this doesn't just happen. You have to work hard, you understand. But the bottom line is God can protect you, and God can do what he says he can do. Thirty years later, almost to the weekend, we're back at Andrews for our daughter Melissa's graduation. When we open up the program, <clears throat> we can see it says Melissa, Suzanne Reed, cum laude, and we were all proud of Melissa. But only Kathy and I, Melissa, probably the business manager, knew that Melissa didn't owe anybody anything in the world, no student loans, no debts at school. Thirty years later, another generation. Isn't that amazing? To me, it is really incredible. Okay, now I'm going to tell you about the Loma Linda part. When we decided that we were going to come to Loma Linda and uh, do the Master of Public Health thing at the School of Health, we, I was accepted here six months before we actually came. And Kathy and I had been married for six years with no children. And we thought we were going to be like Abraham and Sarah, you understand. We really didn't know what we were going to do. But right after we were accepted here at Loma Linda, and Kathy was promised a job at the medical center here, Kathy became pregnant. So when we got here, Kathy was six months pregnant. And the uh, director of nurses took a look at her. This is many years ago, so this lady's probably passed away by now. But I'm just going to tell you, it, it, it really was in God's blessing that all this happened. Because I'm going to tell you something incredible. Nothing is too difficult for God. Amen. That's the amazing thing that I want you to understand. So they didn't want to hire her, you know, that far along in pregnancy. So at any rate, she, got, she worked for a while until Andrew was born at the San Bernardino Community Hospital, I believe it was. But at any rate, the most amazing thing is that because I had been a worker in the Southern Union and was on just a leave, study leave, and that I was a student here, and that Kathy had signed an agreement for the residents to observe the delivery, all that stuff, our number one child, our firstborn, Andrew, was born at the medical center. Our total cost was $150. I don't know if that could happen again or not. But the real interesting thing is then I needed to work more than I was going to work. So when I started the School of Health, it just turned out that Dr. Harding was the dean at that time, Dr. Mervyn Harding. And he, he had known me, so he came to me one day and he says, Ed, we're going to have, uh, st you think it might be working? Oh, wonderful. No, there's some slight feedback. If you get any more feedback, then go ahead. Back. Okay. Should we turn that one off for the time being? Okay. Anyway, Dr. Harding, we were coming over to a class here on the university campus from up on the hill. And he ran and walked up with me and says, Ed, we're going to have student elections today. And uh, I need to have somebody else to run for president. Then there's another guy and, and you. And so anyway, turns out I said, man, I'm so busy. I'm working and, you know, and I'm trying to do good in school and everything. He says, well, we just needed to fill out the ballot. Well, you guys know the rest of the story. I was elected the president of the Student Association for the School of Health. So I was very busy, but it got me in touch with Dr. Harding, Hulda Crooks, his research assistant, and all of that. It was just an incredible thing. But the amazing thing was this. I had had a tree trimming business back at Andrews University, so when I got out here, I said, man, all these palm trees look so shaggy. Doesn't somebody ever trim them? Well, of course you guys do, but the real interesting thing, no one had for a while. So I went to the city office at Loma Linda, and I said, I'm a tree trimmer. I, there's nothing you have around here I couldn't do. You know, you have to really say that you have confidence in yourself, you know. So anyway, I said, I would like to be the city tree trimmer. And uh, the guy said, sorry, it's not in the budget. We don't have a job for that. I said, well, here's my phone number if you ever decide you do. A week later, they called and says, you're the tree trimmer. <laughs> and it was not, it, it was a contract basis. So most of you live around here. You know Prospect Avenue, all the Royal Palms down that street? I have been to the top of every one of those. All the ones on Barton Avenue, almost all the Royal Palms in, Palm, in Loma Linda. I have climbed with spurs and belt it's just, and trimmed them around the top, you know, where the leaves just go out, the fronds, whatever. Well, at any rate... God is good. Not only did I get good exercise every afternoon, but I also was able to pay our way through school. 
at a rate that's way beyond what it would have been by the hour, as you can imagine. Very interesting. God is good. It, to me, it's really, really amazing. Okay, we're going to look at one more text, and that one is over at uh, 1 John chapter 2, and we'll start with verse 15. Do not love the world. Did I say 1 John 2? And starting with verse 15. Don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now, that's all leading up to verse 17. The world is passing away, and the lusts of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. So back where we live in Maryland, we have trash collection twice a week. On Wednesday, you just have general trash. Like anything you don't like, you can put out there and they'll haul it off. But Friday is recycling. And that means newspapers, plastic, cans, those kind of things can all be put out there and they'll take those off. I believe in recycling. I believe in ecology. But listen carefully, my friends. We are not going to save the planet. The world is passing away on the authority of God's word. And all the wicked are going to perish with it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. And that's why it's important that we study. So we're going to go to the screen here. And I'll give you some, I'm going to stand out of the way here just a little bit so you can see what we're looking at here. By the way, if you want a whole bunch of interesting things, all of the PowerPoint programs that I generally give, I put on the internet and you can download them and use them for yourself or your own study, whatever. Uh, when I was in law school, when you prepared for a case, that's called work product. And, you know, people don't like to give away their work product, but I do. I think there's more than 5,000 churches in North America. If I went to a different one every Sabbath, it would take me 100 years to get to them. You understand? So I'm not going to be able to go to your churches wherever it is. So the stuff is up there. Have at it. Okay? You just look in Stewardship Resources and you can see it. And this is what the homepage looks like, so you'll see it. And uh, right here, Stewardship Resources, you'll click on there and you'll find PowerPoint programs and so on. All right, here we go into life management for Christians. And I think this is going to be really important for you to know. I'm just going to go really quickly and also show you that in the end time, the Bible says that greed is one of the big deals. You know what? Uh, is it 1 Timothy, the third chapter, where it says, In the last days perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves and lovers of money. You understand? That's our day. Very interesting. So we're going to start here and go clockwise around here. Planning your personal finances. You know, what you're going to do for your living. How you'll plan your life. Will you spend everything or will you save some? What will your borrowing decisions be? For example... In the borrowing decision, some of you have heard me talk about this, but you know, the Bible suggests that no one be in debt longer than seven years. Deuteronomy 15, verse 1 and 2. You'll see it there. Very interesting. And then, you know, what will you spend your money on? Will you spend it now or will you have some delayed gratification and save for later on? By the way, well, I'll show it to you when we get there. There's another thing is, the, is risk management. This is just insurance. For example, if you have a mortgage on your house, the lending company requires you to have liability or casualty insurance. Should it burn down, you know, those kind of things, you, you can pay the mortgage off. You understand that. What if your mortgage is paid off? Should you still have insurance on your house? Of course. Because for most of us, it's our number one and most valuable possession on this earth. And if it burns down, you're, you just lost your primary asset. So, you know, you can't insure for every eventuality, but for basic things, you should have simple insurance. And then where will you invest your money? Now, it's kind of an interesting thing. Uh, this is very tricky, and we'll talk a little bit more about investments here in this one. And then retirement and estate planning. Did I suggest in the first presentation we had that God was the owner of everything? You remember that. Listen now. If God is the owner of everything, when I'm done with what he has given me, what should I do with it? Give it back to him. Very, very simple. That's estate planning in a nutshell. Okay, let me show you this. This is why education is so important. If you decide you're not going to go to college and you're just going to get a job around home or whatever, I mean, those are temptations for young people. When they get their first job and they start making money, you know, I don't need an education. The whole idea is you can understand how difficult that is. You don't get a job. I mean, you don't go to school. Welcome to living in used mobile home and working in McDonald's. You understand? I mean, it's just uh, there's a whole difference of whether or not you get an education. So for those who get, uh, not, don't graduate, even if they're hard workers, they'll earn about a million dollars in their life. 
go to high school, another 500,000, some college, graduate college, get a professional degree, uh, $4 million. Now this is, this is your lifetime income. I'm going to show you something now that's very interesting. Your level of education determines who your friends are, where you live, where you go on vacation, whether or not you can go on a mission trip. Am I telling you the truth about this? You get the idea. So you have to have some kind of an income. Now let me just show you this. This is absolutely obscene what I'm going to show you. Not this lewd, you understand, but just what's happening. The average American last uh, 2008, which is where we have the last figures for, the average income earner, 31,600. This is a full-time worker. Uh, that would be, uh, if you have a, a professional degree, uh, MBA, whatever, you're going to do 100,000 income for a professional person. So this person, in his lifetime of working 40 years, would earn $4 million in his lifetime. Last year, a number of Wall Street bankers got $40 million bonuses, which means this is 10 times the lifetime income of a professional person given in one year. The president of Occidental Petroleum last year got $65 million as a bonus. This is incredible when there are people in the banking industry who lost their jobs, you understand. Plus 10% of the people in America who want to work do not have jobs at the present. So we're living in a very, very unusual time. I'm not going to go all the way down through this list. I will just show you that it has happened in the past that a large percentage of college graduates end up working in a field for which it has nothing to do with their degree. Do you believe that's true? Yes. I'm going to tell you something interesting. And this will be really valuable for you as young professionals and older people to know about. There's a, a website called crown.org. I don't think I have it up here on the screen today. So just write it down like a king's crown, crown.org, Crown Ministries. It's a, a, the, the successor to Christian Financial Concepts, Larry Briquette's organization, crown.org. And there you can click on a thing called Career Direct. Everybody get it? Career Direct. And what this is, is a CD that you can purchase for high school age kids that they can take a test on their computer. It like, takes half a day. It's not like one of these 15 minute things. But anyway, it will do an evaluation of what your interests are, what your aptitudes are, and it will say, you know, you would do good at this, and in order to do that, you have to uh, take this kind of a college degree. Do you get the point? And it's very, very interesting. And here's the kind of jobs that are available if you do that. Because there are some degrees that you may like. I'm just going to pull one out of the air. Oriental basket weaving or something like that. Of which there are no jobs out there. Do you understand? I mean, you might like it, but if you're going to make a living and have a family, it's not going to work. Uh, that's the, the whole point. So here, the top two right here are computer technology and healthcare. Those people are still working. You understand? Very few people in those areas lost their jobs. And there's, most of these others are pretty hot as well, but I'm, I'm not going to read down through it. This one, I think, is pretty valuable to know. And that is your personal happiness, your stress level, the quality of your family life, the stability of your marriage, and your success. All of these have something to do with how you manage your money. Do you understand that more than 80% of families that dissolve point to financial difficulties as the, one of the major factors in the dissolution of their marriage? This is incredible when you think about it. So I found this real interesting. It would not take a genius to figure out that the devil would like to see every one of these areas of your life messed up. And in many cases, he's been quite successful at this. So I'm going to show you a, a couple of things that I think will be helpful to see. Think of your life as like three segments at the most. Some people divide it into four, and I put it up there. These are all in the book, Faith and Finance. And that is, first part of it is laying the foundation that runs into your 40s. That means getting your education, accumulating your assets, your 40s and 50s, paying off your school loans, buying your house, sending your kids through school, all that stuff. By the way, this is the most stressful time of life, period. You think you've got it bad during college. Wait till this period comes along. Most divorces occur during that period. Very, very difficult. And then, of course, preserving your assets, your 60s and 70s. And finally, distributing your assets, age 75 and beyond. Listen carefully. Whether or not you're a Christian, you are not taking anything with you when you die. So you've got to give it away some way. Make sure it goes, you know, the right place. 
And you'll understand. So I actually put it in this way. Learning years birth to 30, earning years 30 to 60, and returning years 60 till late to rest, or as Del Johnson would say, reaching room temperature. You understand. <laughs> so there you have it. Either you must live within your income or your creditors will eat you alive. Most of you are well aware that later this year, next month in late February, there's going to be some very stringent rules imposed on the credit card companies. So guess what the credit card companies are doing like mad right now? Changing all their rules, changing your finance, you know, the, the typical finance card now or the finance rate is 29.9% carrying it over, which is amazing because last year the carryover balance from month to month of credit card holders in America was $915 billion a month. People are paying interest on this. Uh, it's interesting. I really don't want to get too much into politics this afternoon, so I'm not going to talk any more about that. But I found this interesting statement. He who rides a tiger cannot dismount. <laughs> now, you understand the tiger. I believe I'm correct in this. This is the largest of the cat family. Uh, Kathy and I have been to Kruger National Park in Africa several times, and of course they have no tigers there. But they have lions, and lions hunt in a pride. Are you aware that leopards hunt alone? Uh, and so do, so, do, so do tigers. They don't need help. I mean, they're just incredible animals. So can you imagine yourself on the back of a tiger holding onto his ears or his neck or something? You could not let go or he would eat you. So from a financial perspective, that tiger is debt. Debt and its resulting bankruptcy have drastically changed the American financial picture. So a lady gave me this little uh, limerick thing, and uh, I decided to put it in my program here. There was once a lady from Niger who smiled as she rode on a tiger. They returned from the ride with the lady inside and the smile on the face of the tiger. <laughs> that is debt. It is a real situation. It's a big, big problem for lots of people. Personal or family bankruptcy rates at an all-time high. By the way, I told you earlier today, $14 trillion of American average families' assets and savings and investments have disappeared in the you know, crash of the stock market. By the way, if the company you invested in went out of business, you can wait as long as you want to, but it's not coming back. You get the point? It's very interesting. So all stocks are subject to 100% loss. That's why I encourage people to invest in their own debts. There is no better investment at all than your own debts. Now, way before the current problems, at the very beginning of the housing bubble, there were still 30,700 personal bankruptcies in the United States every week. That's 1.6 million families went under or we say through in the towel. Why do people get themselves in those kind of situations? Bottom line is really simple. Spending more than they make. It's real simple. People want to live higher than they have an income for, and you'll be able to see that. So here's the reason. Three reasons why people have financial problems, and likely in this order. The first one is ignorance. What is ignorance? Has nothing to do with your aptitude. It's whether or not you've been in touch with the information. Does everybody understand that? Yeah, you know, a lot of smart people are ignorant about things. As a matter of fact, you know, I'm an attorney and I have two master's degrees, and the more I re study, the more I realize that I don't know. Do you understand? I mean, the, smart, the more stuff you're exposed to, the more you realize you just don't know about certain things. And this is kind of an interesting thing. People are what I call financially illiterate. They were simply never taught the biblical principles of money management. There's hope for these people, but you won't learn it at the seminary. And I don't know about Loma Linda, but if you have an opportunity to take a class in money management, I would take whatever you could get. Those are important. The second one is greed and selfishness. This is a problem. People will live beyond their means. That means they spend more than they make. They're not willing to live in or to drive or to wear what they can really afford. Do you get the point? Now, another interesting thing, many of these people also feel that they're just too poor to tithe. Consequently, they live their lives without God's promised wisdom and blessing. As I told you this morning, if some of you were there, I think most of you were, when I had this young man sitting me beside me on the airplane, I said, the very first thing you can do, put God first. You just cannot miss on that one. You know, with all the other stuff you may understand, this has got to be important. And you cannot live like God would like you to live an abundant life if you're not in partnership with Him. Okay, here's the third one. And this one is very, very important also. And that's an unfortunate tragedy. Serious illness without adequate insurance. 
being abandoned by a spendthrift marriage partner. By the way, in some 25 years of financial counseling, I've only counseled two people to file for bankruptcy. Both of them were women who were left by spendthrift husbands with huge debts they could not pay. You understand what I'm talking about? It wasn't of their doing. I mean, they just couldn't have lived long enough to pay them back. And uh, that's what I think the bankruptcy was actually for, not for people that max out credit cards. Uh, another one would be a natural disaster. And then finally, a major financial loss not of your own doing. Those are things where unfortunate tragedies come along and people need help, and sometimes we can help them. I want to show you this one. I'll put them all up here so you can see it at once. Uh, there is a great tendency to get involved in get-rich-quick schemes. There was a get-rich-quick scheme that spread across America about 15 years ago, and I'll just tell you the name of it, Greater Ministries. I know on good authority that in Loma Linda alone, more than millions and millions of dollars were lost in that scam. And this was not by the institution, it was by individual investors. Yeah, this is inc incredible, absolutely incredible. So how do you know, and by the way, I will tell you another interesting thing. A lot of people are in debt, people are about to lose their housing, and the foreclosures are higher than they've ever been. So if somebody sees on the internet or in a flashy stuff that comes to their home, you know, get out from under your debt, get out from under 75% of your debt without doing anything different, you know, sign up with our company, whatever. Many of those are scams, and they will take upfront fees, and you never see them again. You understand? Do not get involved in those kind of things. So I'm going to show you this, and I'm going to give you a couple of illustrations so you know what I'm talking about. Almost all get-rich-quick schemes have these four things with them. First of all, promise of high returns or wealth. In other words, how much money are you getting if you have savings right now? Two or three percent if it's in passbook type savings, right? Well, how would you like to get 26% guaranteed? You understand what I'm talking about. This is what they talk about. The whole point I'm going to tell you, if it's too good to be true, sounds too good to be true, it is. Okay, another one, uh, people come along saying you can make six-figure incomes, you know, by working 20 hours a week or whatever. Uh, something new that you re really don't understand. Uh, you must risk money that you can't afford to lose. And you have to make a quick decision. By the way, I'm going to tell you something now that's very incredible. Every person who will tell you about a get-rich-quick scheme sincerely and honestly believes they're doing you a favor. You believe I'm telling you the truth about that? Lots of them. It's amazing. And then when the whole thing goes south, then you lose friends in the church. Several pastors that I know have lost their pastorates because of getting involved in get-rich-quick schemes. But I'm going to give you a story right now so you'll understand how they work. A former, a retired church worker called me one day, lived near where I live, and said, I have found this wonderful opportunity to get some real money that will help me during retirement. But he said, my wife, who doesn't know anything about money, just will not hear of it, and I would like you to talk to my wife. So I said, oh, you're married. I said, well, bring your spouse and you guys come talk with me. Because when you get married, the Bible says you become one. And you're kind of in this together. So they came, and I said, well, just what is the opportunity? And the man, I'm serious now, he had read about this in Poplar Mechanics or something. But he had learned that there was a man who had found a way to get gold out of old dredgings. Now, those of you who are real sure enough Californians, you know in Northern California, many of the rivers have these big round rocks because the dredges went up through there during the 49ers gold rush and all that. And then they, all, they didn't run out of gold here. They just got gold in Alaska and everybody ran up there. But anyway, this guy said that they have new technology now that, you know, back in those days, they just used a sluice box where they had these riffles in it and the stuff was washed over and the heavy stuff would drop down and so on. Well, now they have technology that can get dust out. You know, I mean, it's really incredible. So they can go through those sun tailings and come up with really, really lots of money. But this guy, it would take $100,000 to outfit one of these old dredges and to send it back down the river. But he said he needed 10 people with 10,000 each. And uh, if they could do that, then pretty soon you'd be really making the money. And of course, it sounds great. And I said to this man's wife, what do you think about it? I hate to see ladies cry. 
But she started weeping in my office. She says, Elder Reed, this is all he's talked about for weeks. And I just don't see any peace in it at all. And I don't think it's valuable. We've just paid our house off. Good idea for retirement, as you can understand. And he wants to get a line of credit on the house to get the $10,000. So I said to the man, that's your answer. Don't do it. And I'm going to tell you what I told him. Whether your spouse knows anything about money or not, God gave you that person to keep you from doing stupid stuff. <laughs> you have to help each other out in all these things. I and mean, it's not just one person that's, you know, you understand. The man called me about three weeks later and he said, Elder Reed, thank God we came to see you. He said, the man got 10 people to give him 10,000 each. But instead of going to Alaska, he went to Mexico. And everybody's out of their money. Do you understand? That's a get-rich-quick scheme. Most are scams. And that's the thing I want you to understand. Enough about the problem. So what can you do to experience financial freedom? We're going to talk about a bunch of things. First of all, get organized, develop a budget, have a plan. And uh, you guys, this is one of those duh things. But how many people that I have come to me that can show me their budget? Most people just live paycheck to paycheck and pay whatever squeaks the loudest. You understand that's what happens. So have a budget, a simple plan. And in the book, of course, we just have a one-page simple budget. Another one, spend less than you are and determined to live within your means. And then this one is kind of interesting. Number three over here, save a little every pay period. Start with only $50. And this is not just your retirement. I mean, a little savings. Some of you have heard Dave Ramsey talk about having $1,000 in savings at least. I mean, that's going to be your first goal, to have $1,000 in savings. Well, this is important. Another one is avoid debt like AIDS. <coughs> Interest is one expense you can live without. By the way, Ellen White said, avoid debt as you would the plague. She also said, avoid it as you would the leprosy. Avoid it as you would smallpox. She says all those. Many of you have medical training, so I will just tell you. Back in Ellen White's day, if you got smallpox, what was the prognosis? Almost always death. Nearly everybody that got it died. What do you think she would say if she were writing it today? You understand, something pretty serious here. Okay, we're going on to number five. Be a diligent worker. Now, this is really important. God did not just pay our way through Loma Linda. He gave us an opportunity to work. Did everybody hear that? This is important. It takes work. Uh, another one is be faithful to God. He's given us many promises. I told you about the curses today. But the first 14 verses of that same chapter, Deuteronomy 28, is God says all these things, all these blessings will come on you and overtake you if you obey the Lord. Your family cannot afford to live without God's blessing. And then number seven, remember that this earth is not your home. Our management here actually determines our eternal destiny. And you can see that in many of Jesus' stories. But Matthew 25, I think, is a good example of that as well. Now, I'm going to talk to you just briefly about this uh, idea of giving. We don't give because we have too much. Most of us, when we make our offering out, you know, uh, we get our, our uh, offering statements online now from our church. You know, you have everybody's little code and everything. You get it and print it out. And I think, wow, how do we do that much to the church? We could have used that ourselves, right? But we remember when you're in partnership with God, he asks only a little bit. I mean, it's incredible when you think about it. And all the blessings that you get as a result. I mean, it, to me, it's pretty awesome when you think about it. So we don't, we don't give because we have too much, but we give in response to experienced grace and in thanksgiving for God's blessings. And we give to the things that we believe will advance the cause of God. Christians understand that since God is the rightful owner of everything, when they're finished with the resources, they return them to God by helping others and making contributions to advance the cause of God. Now, I told you, I promised you I would help you with the debt situation. Under the current circumstances, it is almost impossible to start out in life without borrowing something. I'll just tell you that straight up. Somebody asked me about student loans the other day. And I will just tell you something. I would never get a student loan unless I knew that what I was getting the education for would improve my ability to make an income. Do you understand? Not just because I could be in school. This is very, very important stuff. Now, I'm going to tell you another interesting thing. Any government-backed student loan are not dischargeable in bankruptcy. So you can even file for bankruptcy, and you can't discharge any child support or alimony you owe a former spouse or any taxes you owe the government. And the third one is government-backed student loan. So if you get a student loan, by the way, I will just tell you, 
There's only two ways to get out from under that obligation, typically. Pay it off or die. I'm going to give you something really, really valuable here, I would think, in this area. And that is, don't borrow all you qualify for when you get a student loan. Borrow the very minimum you need to get by. Because you have to pay it back with interest. And this is important stuff. Okay, so we're going to talk about debt. What is debt, actually? The Bible talks about debt as bondage or slavery. The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. I can tell you a number of stories about that, but I won't talk to you about it. Uh, does anybody know how often you can file for bankruptcy protection in the, under the, the codes of the United States? Once every seven years. If you do file for bankruptcy, how long is it on your record? Ten years. And by the way, it can adversely affect you for the rest of your life. Even one bankruptcy. I'll give you an illustration. I'm nearing my retirement time, and I went to law school in Atlanta, Georgia. And I passed the bar in Georgia. And some six years later or so, uh, I was offered reciprocity in the state of Tennessee. And since I knew I was going to retire in Tennessee if Jesus hadn't come by that time, I thought it would be a great idea. So I filled out this 35-page application and gave them $1,000. And they you know, finally decided they would let me in. But I'll just tell you something incredible. One of the questions they ask in a 35-page application is, have you ever filed for bankruptcy protection? It's not last seven years, last 10 years, have you ever. It goes to credibility, you know, what you think about and, and what you think about debt and what you think about obligations and so on. Believe it or not, there is a code of professional responsibility in the legal industry, There's, at least at that level. So some people always tell me, well, didn't you know they had bankruptcy in the Bible? I said, are you sure? Oh, yeah. It's in Deuteronomy 15, 1 and 2. So we turn there, and you'll be able to see it. Deuteronomy 15, 1 and 2. To me, this one is pretty amazing. Here it is. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release of debts. Remind you of anything about bankruptcy? What? The seven years, right? So, there it is. Except that, read the next verse. The next verse says... This is the form of the release. Every creditor who has lent anything to his neighbor shall release it. Who's this written to? Lenders, not borrowers. Lenders. It shall, he shall not require it of his neighbor or his brother because it is called the Lord's release. So at the end of every seven years, the bankers had to release all the debts that were unpaid. So what actual effect would that have on society? It's going to be this one. Let's assume that I'm coming to you guys, and you're the bank committee. It's a pretty big committee, but let's just say that you guys are the banking committee, and I'm coming to you for a loan. Now, what I tell you is that I have uh, only one credit card, and I pay it off every month. I'm current on my house payments, and I worked at the same job for, you know, 35 years or whatever. Would you guys give me a loan under those circumstances? Yeah. Probably so. Pretty good risk, right? And, you know, I've just paid my car off or whatever. But... Let's just pretend now that we're back in Bible times, and I qualify for the loan. But how, let's just say that three years of the seven-year cycle have passed. How many years would you let me have to pay the loan off? Three minutes. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Four years max, because at the end of seven years, they're going to have to forget the debt. And the bankers don't have the tallest buildings in town because they're stupid. Do you understand? It was God's way of limiting long-term indebtedness to a maximum of seven years. Very interesting. And if you read the material we have about uh, housing in uh, It's Your Money, Isn't It? You'll see something interesting. Now let me show you, what does surety mean? I heard the right answer. Co-signing. Co-signing. Now I'm going to tell you something amazing. I only have one verse up here, Proverbs 6, but in the book of Proverbs alone, there are four references that say you should never co-sign for anyone. So here's the story. I come in to you guys, you're the banking committee again, and I tell you that I have this desperate need for a loan. If I could just get this loan, I'd get back on my feet again, and I'd pay it off and all of that. But the bank looks at my, uh, you know, TransUnion, Equifax database, you know, the uh, credit score, and I just see, no way. This guy's got too many debts. He's got six credit cards, and they're all maxed out. They've just repossessed his car, and he's two months behind on his house payment, and he hasn't worked steady for six months. 
would you guys give me a loan if that was me? You don't just say no. No way. You get the point? You're not going to give me a loan. It's just as simple as that. But you'll say, if you would get your pastor or your physician or one of the elders of your church to come and co-sign for you, we will give you the money and hold them responsible. Let me tell you, if you co-sign for anyone, that debt is on your credit record until it's paid in full. The Bible says you should never co-sign for anyone. Now this sounds awful until I tell you the next part. We are certainly encouraged to help people, but not to become responsible for their debts. You get the point? There's a difference. So what about co-signing for your kids or relatives? That's what makes a distant relative. Somebody that owes you money, you hardly ever see them, but I will just tell you something interesting. In the United States, in almost every state in the United States, at age 16, it's kind of a rite of passage for young men. Guess what most of them do on that day? Get their driver's license. Oh. So our son Andrew, when he was 15 and a half, took driver training and did well in it, you know, with a driver in the car at school and so on. Anyway, on the day that he was 16, he went up and took the test. I mean, this is not rocket science. Andrew says, Dad, I aced it. I mean, can you just tell that a, the stop sign has so many sides that it's usually red? You understand, it's not a big deal. You have to learn a few things. But the whole, I mean, most people can, can learn it in half a day, you know, or a half an hour. I mean, just read it through the stop. But anyway, he borrowed the family car and passed his, his, uh, his license. Now, here's the deal. I think I've got mine in my pocket here, or my room key or something. Here it is. Andrew has this, we're at supper, the day he got his driver's license. And he says, uh, Daddy, now that I have my license, don't you think I should get a car? I said, I think that would be wonderful, Andrew. And then he said, well, if I had a car, I could drive myself and my sister back and forth to the academy. And you guys wouldn't have to do that. And Andrew was working off campus at Taco Bell, because he was a village student. They couldn't make room for him to work on the campus. So do you guys have Taco Bells out here? Well, Andrew became an expert at Taco Bell. I would just tell you a couple things you may not know. Nothing bad. <laughs> There's only about 12 food items at Taco Bell. Whatever you order is just a combination of that in some different way. You understand? It's just not, it's not real difficult. Another thing is that almost everyone who works there is making minimum wage. Because if you go to any fast food place, welcome to McDonald's, may I take your order, please? It's always a kid or a senior citizen trying to supplement their income. Isn't that true? So Andrew says, Taco Bell is that place, if you show up three days in a row on time, they want to make you manager. <laughs> and the reason is, when kids first start working, it's hard to get them in the routine of being regular and, you know, good workers and so on. But anyway, Andrew says to me, I need a car, but I don't have the money to buy the kind of car I really want. And I said, well, you know what the answer to that is, save your money. But Daddy, you know, I could get it now with a loan, and then I could pay the payments. He says, you know I do it, don't you? But I don't have the money. He says, if you could co-sign for me, I would get the loan. And then he says, you know I'd pay it back, don't you? And he gets right in my face. You know, he says, you know I'd pay it back. And I said, yeah, I believe you would. And I hadn't said anything, but you know there's body language. And so he said, you're not going to do it, are you? I said, no, I'm not. So he said, why not? What's my answer? The Bible says... You should never do it. That should end the discussion for most people. Well, our son Andrew is an attorney today down practicing down in Florida. But anyway, he had these questions. He says, I want to ask you one question. I said, well, sure, go right ahead. He said, did your dad co-sign for you when you got your first car? I don't know how he knew that. And I, I know I've never told him. But I said, yeah, he did, but he didn't know any better. And I know better, so I'm not going to do it. So remember, you're not mean, you're just smart. Do you understand? It's good to help people, but not become responsible for their debts. Now, I have the unique distinction of having spoken at almost every camp meeting in North America, all the ones in the 58 conferences in North America, and I have hardly ever been to one without somebody telling me a sad story of co-signing for someone. So I'm just going to tell you what I said to Andrew. Andrew, I've got a better deal. You decide what kind of a car you want, how much money you want to pay for it. You save up half the money, and I will give you the other half. 
So it didn't seem like long at all to me. <laughs> he had one of these big Honda dirt bikes, a 200cc Honda bike that didn't require a driver's license, you know. So he sold that and he sold his helmet and all his gear and everything and worked extra at Taco Bell and what have you and Christmas money, all this stuff. One day he came to me and says, Daddy, I found this car. It's only $3,000 and I've got $1,500. Where's your money? So he said, I need it. Help him buy his car. That car got driven all the way through college because he took care of it because he had invested in it. Do you understand? Kind of a pretty good deal, I think. So surety is something that you really, really want to avoid. Oh my goodness, we're into the next program. We're going to crash here real quickly. I'll give you a five-minute break, but can we just finish up some of this stuff? Okay, personal surety. What is personal surety? If surety is, is co-signing for someone else, personal surety is co-signing for yourself. Want an illustration of this? Almost everyone who's making time payments on an automobile owes more on the car than it's worth. Is it true? You could not sell it for enough to pay your loan off. So the idea is if you do borrow, try to be not upside down in everything. Put a down payment down there, those kind of things. That's what we're really talking about here. So let's just do the debt elimination thing and we'll stop with that. We'll take a five minute break and then I'll do the, the next one. Because this is really, really important, this stuff is. Here is how to get out of debt. First, I call it debt elimination. The first thing is the basic premise. Like years ago, most of us took geometry. And there's this given things. You're given certain angle to get the other angles. Here's this one. Basic premise, establish the tithe. Get in a partnership with God. Then you can do three steps. Pretty simple. Declare a moratorium on additional debt. What does that mean? No more credit spending. No more borrowing. Another one, you make a covenant with God. What is a covenant? It's a promise or an agreement. Now, this is really, really interesting stuff. You make a covenant with God. It was 1987 in April that Kathy and I knelt down beside of our master bedroom bed. We were living in Georgia, and the dogwoods are blooming out there, and we could sell you something incredible. We were not about to file for bankruptcy. We just thought it wasn't honoring God for us to be paying all this interest on stuff. So we wanted to pay off our debts. So we told God, anything you give us, any extra money from any source, we're going to put it on our debts. We're going to know it's a blessing from you. By the way, do you think God wants your family in debt? But what will the average family do if they get extra money they weren't counting on? A windfall. Just spend it. I was at a big church back east, and a guy raised his hand, and he said, we got $2,500 we weren't expecting. And I said to my wife, how did God know we needed a new riding lawnmower? And they went out and bought themselves something. Do you understand the point? Just spend it. So, but if you've made the covenant, what will you do? Put it on your debts. I could tell you stories that would bring tears to your eyes of what God has done for people once they've made the covenant. Because once he can trust you, you'll get some blessings. I believe it. Another one is you list your debts from the largest to the smallest in descending order. Now, before I show you this next thing, please don't misunderstand. It has nothing to do with the Illuminati or A.L. Williams. It's just a little illustration. Okay, here it is. <laughs> it's a triangle. Inverted triangle. So I'm going to show you. This is only an illustration. You understand, for most people, your, your largest debt is your home mortgage or a line of credit or your student loans, car loans, etc. And you list all of your debts from the largest on the top to the smallest on the bottom. Now, if I had time and we had more time, I could tell you how to pay your house up by prepaying principal. That is so phenomenal that most people just want to do it tomorrow. I mean, it's incredible. You always pay your house off last. Why? There's two things. There's a whole bunch of good reasons. Vern's got one here. Usually lower interest typically, but in addition to that, it's a larger one. It would take you longer to, to uh, sing the victory song. But in addition to that, that interest is the only interest that's still tax deductible. You understand that. And another one that's very, very interesting that you can understand that all of these down here with larger interests and so on are, are really going to be helpful to get those off the board. Then you can really, really go. So it's really just a snowball effect, and it's not a big deal at all. But everybody has to make at least a minimum payment on every debt. You can't decide, well, we'll make the car payment this month and the house payment next month. That doesn't work. Do you understand? Most of you understand that. So you have to make the minimum payment on every one. Remember I told you why people have problems? The first one, does anybody write notes what they were? The first one was ignorance. Kathy, my wife who's here, has been the money manager in our family for the 42 years we've been married. 
She writes all the checks. She does all the, the accounting, everything. The only thing she does is usually about 1st of February, she gives me this box of her file stuff and says, here, you're the attorney, you do the taxes. And that's all I do is just the taxes part. But it's real simple because she's done all the work. You understand? The point I'm going to tell you, though, is really, really very interesting. A lady came to me after one of my seminars, and she waited till last to talk with me, and she said, Elder Reed, I feel kind of embarrassed to tell you this, but I'm like your Kathy. I'm the money manager of our family. And I did not know till today that you could make more than the minimum payment on your credit card. That's ignorance, do you understand? She wasn't stupid, just no one had ever told her. By the way, some companies are unscrupulous, like Sears, for example. If you have a Sears card, you owe them less than $500, like $4.99, they'll send you a statement and it will say, none due. Have you ever seen that? I've seen it before. And the amazing thing is, you don't have to make a payment that month, but next month they charge you interest on the whole thing, and then you have to make a payment. You get the idea? I mean, it's incredible, really. So what you do is you make the minimum payment on everything. Then, down here at Visa, does anybody know why I put Visa at the bottom? It's the smallest word, it just fit in there better. That's the deal, okay. <laughs> This is just a credit card situation I want to tell you about. You make the minimum payment on everything, but on Visa, you add any additional money you can get from any source until after making minimum payment on everything, on, you can pay Visa off. Do you understand? From then on, anything you put on Visa, you pay it off every month. There's no debt there. Then, what you were making minimum payment on Visa, you can add to the Sears minimum payment, and any extra money you get from any source, Understand, expect God's blessings. Did you hear what I said? This is pretty awesome stuff. And then when you get that one paid off, you can put these two minimum payments along with that one. I mean, it really, really builds. By the time you get up to your car loan, if everything else is taken off, you can really pay those things really way down. And then, of course, you have so much more that you can put on your home mortgage. It's, it's just amazing. This is just called the snowball method of paying off your tax, your bills. And I, I think you'll, you'll be able to appreciate it. So some additional assistance. I'll just go through this quickly and we'll take a five-minute break. Establish a budget. Set goals for your family. Like, by this time next year, we're going to have the car paid off. Pretty simple. Destroy credit cards. See that word right there? If. What's the if there? If you're not paying it off every month... Another thing, studies actually show that those of us who use credit cards, even those of us who pay it off every month, will spend more money than if you paid cash, just because it's easy. So you have to be very careful and pretty disciplined in all of this. Uh, let me just tell you, uh, you should use your credit cards for your advantage. And I'm just going to tell you something pretty, pretty personal. Several years back, we had been driving a Chevy Suburban and had a lot of miles on it, but we really liked it, and we decided we were going to buy another one. Well, it just happened that GM came out with a GM MasterCard, which meant that everything that you put on your GM card, they would give you in some kind of little escrow account in the, in, up in the clouds a 5% uh, credit toward the purchase of your next car. So we got one of those. And believe me, we put everything on it. Both of our kids were at Andrews University then, and was, back then it was cheap because it was only 15000 a year. But anyway, we were getting these big bills, $3,000 a month or whatever, and when it came, instead of just sending them a check, we would call them up and give them our credit card number. And those things, you know, they added up. So when it came time to get our Suburban, and by the way, that was a blessing in itself. I won't take time on Sabbath to tell you how much we got for our old one and how the good deal we got on the second one. But I will just tell you that when we went to pick it up, I said to the man, by the way, I was dealing with the sales manager. I said to this guy, uh, before I pay you the balance, I would like to apply the GM credit. He said, well, fine, what's your card number? So I gave it to him, and he's sitting at his computer, and he typed it in. He looked at that and he said, that couldn't be right. So he rebooted the computer program and got it back up again, <laughs> typed it in there. And he says, it says you have $4,150 credit. This is a lot of money at 5%, you understand. So the whole point was, I said, well, that's, I'm sure that's right because we called the company right before we came over here. So <laughs> this guy's sitting down at his desk. He stood up and he came around to the edge of his desk and he said to Kathy, and I, you guys stand up. Put her there. So we both shook hands with the sales manager and he says, you guys have the largest rebate of any customer in the history of Fox Chevrolet in Laurel, Maryland. <laughs> we cut up our card on the way home. We <laughs> never used it again. The, comp the account is closed. We only got it for our benefit.
We now have a United Airlines visa. Believe me, Kathy, whenever I come to nice places like California, she reminds me we're a team. Do you understand? It's not a bad deal at all because she got to come for 25,000 miles. You get the point? Incredible. Use it to your own advantage, not the credit card company's advantage. That's the whole point. Okay, another one, purchase depreciating items with cash, begin economy measures, and the last one, have a sale. Now, I'm going to ask you, probably have to be my age to be able to say yes to this, but I believe most of us could answer something like this. How many of you think you have stuff in your possession that you would never use again as long as you live? You have stuff that is just hanging around. I have notes from college. I mean, this is incredible. <laughs> and other junk, you know. So Kathy came up with all these wise ideas, and one of them was, why don't we have a yard sale? We'd never had one before. Now, I, you guys have heard the expression Bible Belt. Have you heard the Bible Belt expression? Well, that means back in the South, primarily the Southern Union area, there's huge concentrations of Southern Baptists. We lived in Gordon County, Georgia. I'm just going to tell you a little trivia right now. The state of Georgia has 159 counties. They're not the size of San Bernardino County that goes from here clear to the you know, next state. But we're talking about little counties. In those days, we had one Adventist church in Gordon County where we lived. And there were 87 Baptist churches. You could not be more than three miles from a Baptist church anywhere in the county. Now, this is incredible. That's the Bible Belt. The reason I'm mentioning that is because we're going to have our yard sale not on Sabbath, but on Sunday. So I said to Kathy, listen, <laughs> this is so funny what happened to me. At least it was funny to me. I hope you enjoy it. Here's the story. We decided to have this yard sale on Sunday. But we lived out in the country. We're like four miles out of town, and we have 17 acres of land, and it's really wood, and you can't even see our house from the road. Kathy said, no problem. I'll just put little directions with an ad in, because I was thinking we'd have to load this stuff up in a pickup truck and haul it up to Kmart parking lot and sit out in the hot sun or something. No way. They'd come right to your house. So anyway, we thought naively that all of the Baptists would go to church on Sunday morning and have dinner on the grounds and fellowship a little bit. And if anybody came at all, they'd be in the afternoon. So Saturday night, we loaded our garage full of junk. Do you guys hear this, what I just called it? Junk. Okay. But we'd never had one of these before. And I said, well, how do we know how to ask for them? Kathy says, well, just take a little piece of masking tape and put on each one and write on the masking tape. You don't want to deface whatever you're trying to sell. So you write on the masking tape, you know, $2, $1, $5, whatever it might be. And that's the, the way you do it. But we got tired Saturday night, so we decided we'd get up, go, go on to bed, and get up early Sunday morning, and we'd go out there and put out you know, the prices on things. Kathy and I are very early risers. Uh, when we get up at 5.30 every day or sooner without setting an alarm clock, we really enjoy getting up, except in Loma Linda, it's 2.30 in the morning. Because <laughs> of our circadian rhythms, you understand, we're still waking up on Eastern time. Anyway. We got up, we, sometimes we sleep in. We've actually slept in as late as seven o'clock before, and that was one of those times. So seven o'clock, Sunday morning, we got up, and we never missed breakfast. But I, and we're way out in the country. I mean, some of our, our windows don't even have curtains on them because there's no neighbors that can see our house. So I had Bermuda shorts on, no shirt, no shoes and socks, and I walk out on the front porch, and our driveway's lined with cars. There's four cars out there. The lady in the front car had her pillow, and she was sound asleep in her car. I don't know how long she had been there. But the unfortunate thing is that people saw me come out. So they got out of their cars. They're up. They're up, you know. And the, the, the funny part is coming up. I ran back into the bedroom. I said, Cat. My wife's name is Kathy, and I call her Kat. I said, Kat, people are out there already. She said, what are you talking about? I said, today is our yard sale, remember? And we hadn't put prices on anything. So we quickly dressed, no breakfast, ran out in the, we had the garage doors down, and the stuff was in the garage. We started putting prices on. What for this? I don't know. Just put anything. You know, we just put stuff on all of this stuff. The funny part is coming up here. This is amazing. Near the end of the day, all the junk was pretty much gone except about four or five items. No one in this room probably has experienced this like me. But when I was a young boy, when you went to the dump, you didn't just take stuff, you got stuff. 
Do you understand what I'm talking about? You kind of snoop around, might get bike parts or things like that, whatever. Anyway, when I'd gone to the dumpster a year or so before, I'd found this neat little canister vacuum cleaner thing. That the neat part about it is it had a, the extension cord that you could pull out and make a little hick and it'd stop, and it's like 12 feet long. And I thought, well, you know, I'll just take, I know the thing didn't work, it's in the dump after all. So I'll just take that part out and put a female end on it and make it a little drop cord for my tools in my workshop. I'd never gotten around to it. Anyway, I put $5 on it. And this guy came up in an old red pickup, and he looked around, and he says, what's that there? And I said, what's a vacuum cleaner? I said, probably doesn't work. I've never really tried it. But what I like about it is that neat little thing that pulls out. <laughs> I says, $5. And uh, I said, yep, that's it. It's worth it to me. If you don't want it, fine. Anyway, he says, I'll take it. And I said, well, is there anything else you want? He says, no, that's all the money I have. So I thought to myself, this is going to be fun. And I looked around, and there were a few other items there. I said, tell you what, my friend, this is your lucky day. I'm going to let you have everything else that's left for another $5. He said, sold, and he pulled out a $10 bill and bought the whole thing, which saved me a trip to the dump, right? Now, this is interesting. We made $265. You have to read about it and it's your money, and I'm giving you guys a free copy of it. I'm going to tell you something amazing. On Monday, we invested that in a legitimate investment, our own debts, and made 2,700% return on investment in one day. Now, this is incredible. You can do it. It's in the book. Okay, that's what I'm going to tell you about. This is the end of this section. We're going to have to take about a three-minute break. And let's see, when the, when, the, when the hand gets down to six there, the long hand, which is going to be 430, we're going to start again, okay? Because I want to give you, we'll go really fast in the next section. We'll be right on time with it. So take a break and get a drink or something and let me get a drink. And we'll start back at 430.